Hey now, welcome to Random Movie Club. I'm your host, Rob Logan. In each episode, I sit down with a co-host to discuss any movie of their choosing. The only qualification is that the movie is available to watch at home on DVD, Blu-ray, or digital. Before you listen to this show, I highly recommend that you watch the movie we're going to talk about, because we're going to spoil everything. Also, at the end of the episode, I'll tell you which movie we're going to discuss next so you have enough time to watch it. If you enjoy Random Movie Club, you can help keep it going by supporting us on Patreon. Supporters get special benefits like bonus episodes, patron-only events, giveaways, and more. Show your support for Random Movie Club and The Geek Generation by visiting our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com support. On this episode, I'll be discussing Labyrinth with Aaron Rose. Let's roll the film. Labyrinth was released in 1986 from director Jim Henson. Written by Dennis Lee, Jim Henson, and Terry Jones, the film stars David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly. So, Aaron. Yes. Why did you choose this movie? Labyrinth has always been my favorite movie. It's like the first movie I remember watching Mm -hmm. growing up. It was one of those, like, we recorded it off of the TV, I think off of, like, Wonderful World of Disney or something. It's probably the only movie I can watch a million times, and it doesn't get old. And I think it's weird, like, fantasy, world-building, David Bowie musical-ness formed a lot of my personality. Yeah. Um, No. Yeah. (laughs) Shush. (laughs) Yeah. So before we get into the movie itself, I have a ton of trivia that I always get off IMDb. Okay. So we can go through that. So first of all, Michael Jackson, Prince, and Mick Jagger were considered to play Jareth. Sting, too. Jim Henson preferred Sting until his kids convinced him that David Bowie would be best suited to it. Bowie wanted to make a children's movie, liked the concept, and found the script funnier and more amusing than many other contemporary special effects movies. I can see that. Yeah. Although I would have liked to see David Bowie in like Star Wars, I think would have been. (laughs) That would have been different. (laughs) Helena Bonham Carter, Jane Krakowski, Yasmin Bleeth, Sarah Jessica Parker, Mary Stuart Masterson, Laura Dern, Maddie Corman... Carrie Green, Lily Taylor, Laura Sangianco, Ali Sheedy, Mia Sara, and Marissa Tomei all auditioned for the role of Sarah Williams. Krakowski, Sheedy, and Corman were all highly considered, alongside Jennifer Connelly, who, of course, eventually won the role. That's a long list. It's a very long list. A long list of well-known people. Yeah. Although, was Jennifer Connelly very known at that time? No. This is like her third or fourth movie. That might be why they went with her. Maybe. To be honest. Yeah. Very fresh. Yeah. The movie is loosely based on Outside Over There, a children's picture book written and illustrated by Maury Sendak in 1981. The story follows young Ida, who must enter the fantastical world described as Outside Over There, to find her babysitter who's been spirited away by some goblins. Additionally, Sendak's famous book, Where the Wild Things Are, is seen in the bedroom at the start of the film. I always thought that was just... Coincidence. One of the many coincidental things that were there. Just yeah, sort of no, like it's setting a it very up. purposeful link. Uh-huh, okay. I love stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> the owl in the title sequence is computer generated. No. Yeah. Believe it or not, the first attempt at a photorealistic CGI animal character in a feature film. Huh. It's funny looking back at it because it looks like a Windows yeah. 1995 screensaver. Yeah, but, but for a first attempt... It's pretty good. Not bad. Yeah. Considering every time anybody says it's a piece of cake in this movie, something bad happens shortly after. I have so much to say about that. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the various things that Jareth does with the crystal balls are not camera tricks or any other kind of special effect. They're actually done by choreographer Michael Motion, who is an accomplished juggler. Motion was actually crouched behind Bowie with his arms replacing Bowie's. Unlike a typical Muppet performance, however, he had no video screen to view his performance, so his manipulations were performed completely blind. That's so cool. I got it in my mind that I was going to learn contact juggling. It lasted all of like three minutes. (laughs) And I was like, cool, I do not have the skills to quickly dismiss be the Goblin King. (laughs) But it's nice to know that neither did David Bowie. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So we're not all expected to be at that level. (laughs) The sources of the characters can be seen in Sarah's bedroom at the beginning of the movie. She has a stuffed animal that looks like Sir Didymus on her dresser, a doll that looks like Ludo on the shelves next to her door, a fiery doll on a shelf next to her bed, bookends with goblins reminiscent of Hoggle on her dresser, and a figurine of Jareth on the right-hand side of her desk. 
Additionally, a scrapbook shows newspaper clippings of Sarah's actress mother in pictures with David Bowie. The dress that she wears in the ballroom scene is worn by the doll in her music box. A wooden maze game on her dresser is reminiscent of the hedge section of the labyrinth. And hanging on her wall is a copy of the famous M.C. Escher picture that inspired the room where the final confrontation with Jareth occurs. That's a lot of foreshadowing. It is. But it's important. It is important because it means something for the whole of the movie, which I'm (laughs) sure we'll talk about. In the scene where Toby is seated on Jareth's lap, the baby has a fixed and hypnotized look off camera as Jareth murmurs evilly into his ear. In fact, Toby screams so much during the many takes of this scene that something had to be done to keep him quiet. Fortunately, a crew member had a sooty puppet, and for the duration of Jareth's speech, David Bowie had the puppet on one hand out of shot, gently wiggling to distract Toby. The child was entranced, hence the hypnotic stare and the perfect silence. Never work with children or animals. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Work with goblin puppets all you want, but... No children or animals. No babies. No. <laughs> That's crazy that he had to act while being like, look over here, look over here. On the soundtrack throughout that entire song, that track, Mm -hmm. the baby noises are David Bowie. Are they really? Making baby noises. In the movie, I think it's, you know, just like ADR baby sounds. But on the soundtrack, the baby noises are David Bowie making weird, like, cuckoo noises. That's so strange. The baby who plays Toby is Toby Froud, son of Brian Froud, who was the conceptual designer for both this movie and The Dark Crystal, another Jim Henson production. And I believe in the original script, his name was actually Freddy. I think you're right. But the baby wouldn't respond to that, so they had to change it to Toby. (laughs) It's a better name, though. It is a better name. I can't imagine that movie, like, her running around yelling Freddy. It doesn't doesn't work as well. That's a different movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hoggle consisted of Sherry Weiser inside the suit and four puppeteers led by Brian Henson controlling 18 motors inside the face rig. Manipulating a mechanical mitt on his right hand, Henson controlled Hoggle's jaw movements and provided the voice. Another puppeteer provided further lip movements with another mitt. The third puppeteer used a fingertip joystick lever to control Hoggle's eyes and eyelids. The fourth used a similar mechanism to animate the eyebrows and a foot pedal to control the skin around Hoggle's eyes. The puppeteers had to rehearse together for weeks to anticipate each other's movements. The coordination. It's for some of these puppets. It's crazy, but so appreciated. Yeah. The skill it must take to do that and to really work together in a way where you do feel like a living being because that's what you're creating. Right. And and knowing how many takes film takes in general. Oh yeah. Especially alongside a human actor who mm-hmm. might be like, "Oh, I moved my eyebrow the wrong way. <laughs> we have to do it again." Sorry, puppet guys. (laughs) All 18 of you need to. Or vice versa. The puppet people screwing up and the actor being like, I have to do that again. Hoggle's gaze just drifting in the middle of a take. (laughs) I fell asleep. Sorry. (laughs) And lastly, one of the choreographers for the film is Cheryl McFadden. She also appears uncredited as one of the mass dancers in the ballroom scene. Do you know the significance of her? Cheryl McFadden. A year after this film. She starred on a little show called Star Trek The Next Generation, credited as Gates McFadden, playing Dr. Beverly Crusher, a role she played in six of the seven seasons of the series and four feature films. She was the choreographer on this. Oh, do we know which dancer she was? I'll have to rewatch that scene. I don't know which, no. Because there's one dancer who like whispers something into David Bowie's ear very surprised yeah and I've always wanted to know who it was and what she says because he turns and gives her this look that's mm-hmm. like you how dare you say that to me and he keeps going and I, she's been like one of my favorite characters in that movie ever I wouldn't since. be surprised because why not give her that attention yeah if she's in it anyway so let's talk about the movie yeah. uh it starts off with Sarah in a local park giving a monologue from her favorite book The Labyrinth she rushes home when she realizes that she's late She always forgets the one line, of course, and that line will end up being very important later on in the story. Interesting opening scene. Very interesting opening scene. Almost like they were going for something else and then were like, oh, by the way, she's acting. Yeah, it is a little... I remember as a kid being like, what? Oh. Yeah. You pulled a switch on me. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, there's a book. You're reading something. Yeah. It's when she hoists up her dress and there are jeans. Yeah. Very relatable, though. <laughs> Very relatable. Oh, totally. Every time I have to hoist up my dress. I know what you do, Rob. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> At home, Sarah's stepmother and father are getting ready to go out. 
and she's upset that she has to be there to babysit her stepbrother, Toby. So obviously this character's into acting and stuff like that. So she's a little melodramatic in general. Yes. But man, is it over the top. Oh, so over the top. Like, I know Jennifer Connelly is only 14 in this movie, playing 16, which generally doesn't happen. Usually you right. start with an older age and have them play younger and they're doing the reverse. But I would say kind of overall, her acting in this is one of the weaker parts of the movie. It's definitely not great. She comes off very bratty mm. and very, like you said, melodramatic. At the beginning, it's kind of hard to like get behind her. Oh, it's so hard to like she's her. kind of a brat. Yeah. Which I don't know how much of it is just her being 14 and how much of it is intentionally like be a little over the top. Yeah. Because by the end, she does sort of, she gets it together, which is, I mean, part of the whole voyage of the film. But I don't know if that, maybe if it had been an actress who was 16 and they Mm -hmm. were like, be over the top, it would be a slightly more reined in over the top. Yeah. Like who knows if it was an experience as an actress or if it was, we want you to play. Right. Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You be the adult equivalent of the screaming baby. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She tells the story of the Goblin King to Toby and makes a wish that the goblins come and take him away. Toby seemingly vanishes from the room as an owl claws on the window and creatures sneak around. Goblin King then appears before Sarah and she asks that Toby be returned. He says that she has 13 hours to solve the labyrinth and reach the castle before her baby brother is turned to a goblin forever. We're only 15 minutes into the movie. And they got a lot of exposition out of the way. Yep. Very fast. Almost a little too fast. We got to move on to those puppets. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Get those introduced as fast as possible. They just wanted to get to the labyrinth as fast as possible. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know how much more exposition you can necessarily ask for without it being too much. Yeah. It just felt so fast, I guess. I mean, some of the cuts and edits, I think definitely around the parents are, I mean, they feel like they slap you in the face. But I don't mind the pacing. No. But I have very, very few complaints about. <laughs> I'm not All my complaints about this movie happen in the first 15 minutes. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And it like really just has to do with the, the cutting and like, yeah. the editing and the weird setup of shots. That's okay. it. That's all. Outside the walls of the labyrinth, she meets a dwarf named Hoggle, who is spraying fairies. She tries to help one, which bites her. The first indication that not everything here is how you think it should be. He opens the door to the labyrinth to let her in. After continuing straight ahead for a while without seeing any turns, she meets a worm who helps her see that there are turns she didn't notice. Now, this worm shows up in a lot of places when people like talk about this movie and stuff. Yeah. And yet is in it for just such a small sliver. Yeah. I feel like that happens with a couple of different characters Mm. in this movie. Once you sort of get into these weird hardcore labyrinth fans. Not that I know. (laughs) I'm at all. Uh, But I mean, the worm's adorable. And he's the first friendly character she meets, really. So that that helps. I like the offer of like coming in for a cup of tea, meet the missus. Right. (laughs) Had she said yes, like what would have happened? Would she have somehow shrunk? Would he have been like, oh, here's this this door has appeared over here that's you sized? It is interesting. Which, I mean, things happen. She could have turned around and all of a sudden been worm sized. True. And then it's like straight up Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting, too, that a lot of people are like, oh, if the worm had just let her go the way she wanted to go, mm-hmm. the whole movie pretty much would have been avoided. I'm not sure that's the case. I don't think it would have been doing her a favor to let her go right to the castle, because I don't think she would have gotten to the Goblin City without the help of her friends. No, she definitely wouldn't have. So I feel like that's part of the journey. She had to like meet everybody and kind of form her own little group Yeah, to get there. Right. I mean, she needs to get help from outside of herself. But I think it's also indicative. It's that first character. You're like, oh, this nice, helpful character. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, I did a good thing. I turned her right around. The intentions were certainly good. Oh, here we go. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to be that kind of place. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the Goblin King and his minions sing a nonsensical dance magic song. It's not nonsensical. It is kind of nonsensical. It's catchy. Well, it's catchy. But it really has nothing to do with anything. No, it doesn't. That's what I mean by nonsense. To be fair, really, none of the musical numbers have anything to do with the... They were very much, hey, we want you to write some songs for the movie, and we'll just stick them in here and there. I don't think any of them were hit singles, either. I don't think so. Although, it did very well. I think it was like hit the top of the charts in Germany. I think Underground had its own... Like, music video was made. I think I stumbled upon that one There were a couple music videos, actually. I think there were two or three... 
one of them had just scenes from the movie and others actually had like Muppets in the music video, like new stuff they did just for those. I like underground. I think underground's like a bop, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anything that uses a saxophone solo. Yeah. Is, we got to bring that back as a thing. <laughs> it is funny too in these, in this dance number, how obvious it is when Toby is a doll. Oh my God. The floppy arms yeah. kill me every time. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It's a thing, though, that when you watch as a kid, you don't really right. perceive it. Something might feel off, but you just don't know why. Yeah. But now it's so obvious. <laughs> <laughs> she approaches two guards in front of doors, one of whom always tells the truth and one of whom always lies. Believing she figured out the right way, she enters and falls into a trap door. It's such a good and important scene. Why is it important? Because she did choose correctly. And yet still. But she said it was a piece of cake. Oh, is this another time where she says that? Yeah, she walks through the door. I didn't pick up on that. I only picked up on like two times where yeah. she says that. She walks through, says, I could never get it before. This is a piece of cake. And he immediately falls to the floor. Lovely. So it's almost like those are legitimate trigger words. Yeah. To activate something. Yeah, because she's taking it for granted. Oh, yeah. Caught by the helping hands, they give her the choice of going up or down, to which she chooses down and is guided into an oubliette. Who, in that situation, <laughs> says... I was up there where I know there's light and openness. I've seen it. And who says, let's go to the creepy down. Yeah. I mean, I do have, <laughs> like, I have my thoughts on why that happens as like a plot point, but I don't know, like as a character, why she would be like, yeah, down into the dark hole. Seems good. Oh yeah. Plot wise, it makes sense. Yeah. And her reasoning being like, well, I'm pointed that way. No. You're not really. I mean, your feet are, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure if they help you to the top, you can use your arms and like just get out of right? the hole. It's weird. It's a weird rationale. The behind. Have you seen behind the scenes photos of? I have not. That oh, it's so cool. There's like behind the scenes videos and like making mm -hmm. of things, and that whole sequence. I mean, it's actual people with mm -hmm. their hands, and they're actually like holding her up and moving her down yeah. this weird half tunnel. It's almost trippy. To oh, look I'm at sure. from a distance to yeah. see just this weird <laughs> And there probably tower had to be an insane amount of people oh, yeah. doing that. And the same with the coordination to make the yeah. faces because it's up to six part. hands I of face. I love the faces kind of speaking in different voices and stuff. That's super cool. I often like do the hand gestures by myself and I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. I only have two hands. Like it's just <laughs> I need more. I just have eyes or like a mustache. <laughs> In exchange for a bracelet, Hoggle helps her back to the labyrinth. On the way, Jareth stops them and threatens to send Hoggle to the Bog of Eternal Stench. He also removes three hours from the clock and summons the cleaners, who they narrowly evade. There's the uh, part here where she steals the jewels mm -hmm. and uses that line, it's not fair, which comes up so many times throughout oh. the movie. It's not fair, it's not fair, and of course... <laughs> preempting the whole thing with saying it about coming home. It's like the first thing she says when she sees her stepmother, I think. As she, after oh, she yeah. comes out of the rain, and she's, she's saying up. it's not fair right as she gets yeah. to her house. Like she hasn't even gotten to her stepmother yet, <laughs> but she's the house is in like I rain. She's just like, it's not fair right away. <laughs> this rain is so unfair yeah. to me in my life. Yeah. A little entitled a little bit. <laughs> The sound of a large creature yelling scares Hoggle away, but Sarah goes to investigate and sees several armored guards attacking the suspended creature. Throwing rocks that seem to magically roll to her, she scares them away and frees Ludo, who joins her on her journey. Entering a forest, Ludo falls through the ground and disappears. When I first watched this, I couldn't rationalize the rocks moving. <laughs> I was like, why is that happening? I know this is a weird place. But obviously you find out later why that was a thing that could yeah. happen. But at the time I was like, this this is dumb. It's true. <laughs> if you don't know that Ludo can like yeah. summon rocks. rocks. Yeah. Which I mean by itself is still kind of a weird skill that he has. But it is, but fine. I can accept yeah. that. This is a weird world. It does seem like a rock just conveniently rolls itself. And then another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just keep going. It's very strange. Jareth appears before Hoggle again and once more threatens to send him to the Bog of Eternal Stench if he doesn't give her an enchanted peach or in the event that she kisses him. The uh, So there's a thing here with Hoggle's clothing. I don't know if you know about it. At least something I noticed. It's, it's in the whole movie, mm -hmm. but it's very obvious here. The back of Hoggle's vest has a design very similar to a face. Oh. Kind of illustrating that he is a two-faced character. 
He literally has two faces on him. I mean, I always noticed like the decor in the back of his vest, but Mm. I never thought about the two faced. It even has like there's a little strap on the back of the vest, like near the bottom in the center, Mm -hmm. like hanging out of the mouth of the face. So it's like a little tongue. I'm going to have to. It's interesting. I really stare at the back of Hoggle. I didn't just notice it like I did my research. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little sad I was not here to watch this movie for the first time with you. I- I've seen it before. Oh, have you? Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I saw this when I was little. So this is this okay. is a rewatch. I just hadn't watched it in a long time. Well, then I'm sad I wasn't here to be annoying the entire movie. <laughs> Sing along to these nonsensical oh, songs. They are nonsensical. <laughs> Back in the forest, Sarah encounters the Fieries. Who, is it Fieries or Furies? Or... I call them fireies because that's how they pronounce it in the song. Okay, that's what I thought. That's true. Uh, yeah. Encounters the fireies who are able to attach and reattach their own body parts. She runs away when they try to separate her head. This is a weird fever dream of a sequence. Yes. It is the part that creeped me out the most. It's terrifying. As a kid. It is, even though they're all kind of like upbeat, they're being upbeat, but also threatening to rip her head off. Yeah. I mean, it's like the weird back alley of Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. Because they look, when they're just like dancing around, they don't look that scary. No. But once you really get down to what they're doing and like doing to each other and the lyrics of the song, it's weird. It's a weird thing. the insanely obvious green screen. It was black velvet. Was it? Yeah. It looks horrible. So I don't know if it was because of the technology or because of like how video cameras worked at the time, but they had to get the puppeteers in entirely blacked out velvet against a black velvet screen so that oh. the light wouldn't reflect while they were like dancing and moving and is taking these pieces around. Is kind of have an outline on them? I think There's like a little bit of a black outline. Why they look them. kind of fuzzy. Yeah. And not just because they're like fluffy puppets. Like okay. they look kind of blurry on the edges. There's one part too where they like drop the opacity down on one of them and I couldn't <laughs> tell. I've watched this scene over several times like this one particular clip of it. Because one of them opens their mouth and you can see the forest inside their mouth. And I was like, did they oh. just chroma that poorly? And But I think they actually took down the opacity of the whole thing. There must have been oh. some reason they felt they had to. Because you can see it a little bit in the eyes, too. Yeah. And so, like, one of them is almost a little see-through at one point. I was like, wow, <laughs> this part doesn't hold up so well. But I think, I think not only because of the tone of the scene and everything, I think that's another thing that as a kid, I'm like, this doesn't look right. Yeah. And I didn't know why. It just yeah. didn't look right to me, and that stood out as extra creepy. Yeah, which I guess kind of works. It does. Because yeah. it seems like these things that, as a kid, you acknowledge don't feel right gives you that sense of unease mm. that I don't know if it necessarily carries over to being an adult, but you remember being like, this is a weird thing that is happening. Yeah. And it should not be happening. But also stuff that creeps you out as a kid, like just kind of stays in the back of your brain. Yeah. So if you watch that stuff again when you're older. Yeah. All those old feelings come back oh, again. Yeah. yeah California Raisins. Part. I will never, ever watch California Raisins for that reason. <laughs> Hoggle rescues her and she thanks him with a kiss, opening up another trap door that leads them to the bog of eternal stench and reuniting them with Ludo. This is another part that's hard for me to watch. It's so gross. Yeah. It's so extra gross. It's super gross and I can't watch it without thinking about what it might smell like yeah and that just makes me not want to watch it. and they don't shy away from it either no they're like here's one solid frame of like a puckering mud bog you're like thank you that's an image i needed in my brain now originally this whole part in an early version of the script there was no bog of eternal stench this was just like normal water Hmm. and they just had to get across the bridge that was the challenge so they had to get by Sir Didymus. That's why. So there's the leftover part. Actually, we'll get to that right now. Uh, at the bridge that leads out of the bog, they meet Sir Didymus, who won't let them pass. After a brief altercation, they finally get his permission. When attempting to cross, the bridge breaks. Saludo calls the rocks to form a new bridge. So Sir Didymus is my favorite character by far. <laughs> One, because he's great. Uh, and two, because he's like the main character to me that feels like a real Muppet. Like, he yeah. moves like a Muppet. He sounds like a Muppet. Everything is Muppet about Sir Didymus. And whereas the others, mm-hmm. like, normally you don't see Muppet's legs all the time. Right. And that's always weird. Because yeah. they never quite get that right. It's also why the Fireys are weird. Because yeah. you can see their whole bodies. <laughs> and and Ludo, 
is also very much Muppety, but he's so big and you don't get Muppets like that a lot either. So yeah. Sir Didymus is like straight up Muppet. So I'm like, oh, I get you. <laughs> I can relate to you. <laughs> you make sense to me. Yeah. But the part where Ludo makes the rock bridge and he lifts them out of the bog so they can walk across, mm -hmm. that was still in the original script after the bridge broke to help her get across. But I think making it the bog makes that part not work as much. Because to me, even as a kid, I logic this in my brain and was like, wait, if they come up out of the bog and she steps on them, she's still stepping on bog water. Yeah. Does she still smell? Maybe you have to assume it's a very little amount of bog water because I've definitely thought of the same thing. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I hate walking on mud anyways, because I'm me, but <laughs> the idea of being like, I don't, it's uh, like, I appreciate all you've done for me, Ludo, but those rocks still smell, mm -hmm. so I can't walk on them. Please find another way. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> or like chop down Sir Didymus's tree so it falls on top of the rocks. Yeah. I can walk across the tree. I'd be like, how about you walk yourself over on these rocks and carry me <laughs> back across them? <laughs> I don't care if you smell. I yeah. just don't want to smell. Like You're a giant hairy friendly beast. You probably already smell a little bit. <laughs> Might as well just smell a little yeah. more. Though I love Ludo in this entire sequence where he's just like, smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's no beating around the bush with Ludo. Oh, no. He's great. He's great. <laughs> now, the big question, Sir Dynamis, do you think he's a squirrel or is he a fox? Definitely fox. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's debate. There people some, that think he's a squirrel? Some people are adamant that he's a squirrel. Based on what? I don't. Based on false perception. I don't know. Is it because he goes in the tree? I think it's because of, I think it's a mix of that and how small he is. Because he does ride the sheepdog. Yeah, so he does seem still, small. Here's the like: is he even either? Well, like, what are these? Also true. Like, there are no actual real things in here. Even the worm is not like a real worm. Well, the sheepdog's real. Well, yeah, but that's her dog. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just transplanted. Which I guess also would maybe because it's a dog, people might think dog mm. squirrel. Logical. I guess, but also if you think back to her room, that's definitely a fox, a stuffed like fox in her room. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And if that's Sir Didymus converted, then Fox. Argument over. I solved it. <laughs> Thanks. That was the most in-depth <laughs> discussion we've had about this movie so far. Fox or Squirrel. Look, it's the important question. I know. I understand. Back in the forest in Hungary, Hoggle gives Sarah the enchanted peach. She takes a bite and loses consciousness. Her mind goes to a ballroom where she dances with Jareth before realizing it's a vision and shatters her prison. She pops the bubble. She does pop the bubble. Which I never, I don't think I ever realized what was happening when I watched it as a kid. That she was actually trapped inside of the bubble and broke it open. Right. Like that just didn't occur to me. I was like, oh, she got out of the thing by smashing something. <laughs> <laughs> of course I didn't you put did. two and two together. You were that guest at the ballroom on the side, like, use the chair. Yeah. <laughs> just hit something with a chair. <laughs> uh, so there are certain songs in this that make total sense for Bowie to sing this one, especially. But I've never loved in movies where there's one artist kind of doing the whole soundtrack. Like even even the 1989 Batman movie where it's all Prince songs, mm -hmm. it kind of creates like an audio monotone in That's a way funny. because it's all the same vocal performance all the time. And I'm like, just give me like different flavors, yeah. like have some Bowie songs. Sure. But include some other stuff, too. I know that's like an appeal of a lot of people doing these movies. I mean, the Fireys did do their own song. Okay, that's true. That's true. <laughs> In this weird, like... Reggae. Reggae samba yeah. horror show they <laughs> had the going on. It's the creepiest song in the movie. So, I mean, be careful what you wish for. That's very true, actually, yeah. You can get a soundtrack of David Bowie, or you can get that. The other thing, too, is I'm not a huge... I don't I'm not a huge Bowie fan, so... That's... As far as his music shows. So, none of the songs really did anything for me. Dance Magic's not bad. That's a catchy song. Though. It's a very catchy song. That's a catchy song. song. I can't deny that. Sarah awakens in a junkyard, but can't remember why she's there or what she's looking for. She's led into a tent that contains her bedroom and for a moment is satisfied until she tries to leave and the junk lady enters and hands her a bunch of her own things. She finds the labyrinth book and remembers that she's looking for Toby. When she exits, she's at the gates to the Goblin City. There's a lot of stuff in here that was changed from the original script as well. Really? Mm-hmm. So the junk lady was Jareth in the original script. 
So we had already seen at one point that he disguises himself sometimes as other creatures. He had yeah. what was I don't even know what that character would be called, like the peddler. Oh had yeah, pulled off that costume right before summoning the cleaners and everything. So we've seen him do that already. He does it again here in the original script, and he's like dressed up as the junk lady, which makes sense because she's purposely diverting Sarah away from progressing on in the movie. Yeah. So why not have that be Jareth continuing trying to stop her progression? I think that would have been a cool thing to leave in there. Yeah. I mean, well, I guess it does pan over like the next couple of shots. Jareth is very clearly like in his castle. Mm. I was going to say, it doesn't necessarily say that it's not him in disguise. We just don't see that it's. Yeah, him. I'm, it could still be. Yeah. But there yeah. are there are junk ladies in the back. True. Moving around. There's also another thing in the script was that as she's going around the room, and putting all the things behind Sarah's back. She's kind of like creating a junk lady. Yeah. By sticking things there. So in the original script, there's a scene where she's doing that. And then Sarah looks in the mirror and sees herself like old and decrepit with all this stuff piled up on her back. And that's part of what snaps her out of it. Uh-huh. Because she sees herself becoming one. I always assumed that's what was happening. Yeah. And whether or not, like... It's just super subtle, though. Like, they, yeah. don't, they don't really call attention to it. Right. Yeah, I think they probably could have still... And it, maybe that was too dark, though. I think a lot of things were scrapped because they were darker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they had yeah. to keep it a kid's movie. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about it now, I'm like, oh, that sounds so cool. But I'm a 26-year-old adult. Right. Who thinks that is a cool <laughs> and, like, dramatic thing to have happen. Yeah. Five-year-old me maybe would have been a little perturbed. A little bit. Yeah. And extra creeped out. Yeah. At the gate, they encounter a mechanical Goliath that Hoggle dispatches of. Didn't need this scene kind of as a whole. It was a little... Extraneous. Extra. Yeah. It was also not a part of the original script. They kind of tacked it on afterwards. And I think it feels that way. It definitely feels that way. And it also feels a little bit like they felt like they had to put something like that in there. Like they needed another action beat. Yeah. Which is kind of how I feel about the whole Goblin City. Oh, yeah. The thing. It just feels so long. It's funny. There are funny beats in it, mm-hmm. but it feels so long for something that, when it comes down to it, is a bunch of full sized creatures just like stepping around <laughs> a city full of goblins and showing up to the front door. Pretty like, much. Come on. Pretty much. Yeah, they could have just called the rocks earlier and been yeah. done with it. Yeah. It seemed like they just had extra like chickens and cats in the Henson Studios, and they were like, we need to put them in a scene, <laughs> because well. there are so many chickens flying around in this. That's true. The whole sequence of the Goblin City always distracted me as a kid. <laughs> why are there like, so many why chickens? Why are there chickens here? That's true. They must really like eating chickens, or yeah. not eating chickens. That's why there's so many. <laughs> the only real animals in this entire world are chickens <laughs> the sheep and dog one and dog, chickens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and potentially a fox. Potentially a weird fox squirrel yeah. hybrid. So something else from the original script kind of outlined the stages of everything more. And they leave it very vague and different in the final result. So there's all these parts where she's like in the forest and then in the May. And it kind of jumps around a little bit. But in the original script, when she meets Hoggle, Hoggle like clearly says there's a maze level there's a forest level, there's a stone level, and like you have to progress through those three areas in order to get to the Goblin City. Oh. I kind of would have liked that structure. Yeah. It would have given me a sense of their progress because until they get to the Goblin, like they just kind of show up at the Goblin City as soon yeah. as she gets out of the vision. It's like, whoa, okay, we're there. Yeah. But if we knew like they're in the forest is the final phase before it, be like, oh, they're getting close. Yeah. Because, I mean, when you look at the backgrounds as she goes, they do change. Mm-hmm. But I guess, yeah, there is no indicator that going from forest to Goblin City or forest to junkyard to Goblin yeah. City, it feels like there's this big, like, amorphous space right outside of the city that there is no, there's no I mean, actual the labyrinth. the whole thing is kind of amorphous anyway, because doors appear, like, yeah. stuff just kind of shifts around and appears as... It, we want it to, which yeah. I think is another thing we'll kind of get to as we yeah. dissect it. There is a novelization. There is yeah. a book oh, okay. that I did read. And I do remember in like the forest part, there is like doors do show up. Mm-hmm. And she like opens them and looks in them and is like, oh, not going in there. Which 
in hearing you talk about the original script, which I read so, so, so long ago, it seems like whoever wrote the novelization, whose name escapes me right now, must have taken things and put them back in in, to explain things and, you know, added some other things. That's a whole other yeah, it Can does. Worms. There are a lot of things that they do that don't, they don't necessarily explain in the movie. Some of them make sense to totally take out because you don't really need them. Yeah. But there are some things that are like, but why? Where I don't think it would have hurt to necessarily leave them in. Maybe it would have yeah. slowed the pacing down. I don't know. But mm. we'll know unless we would have watched the other version, I guess. Apparently, but. who is it? Was it Joss Whedon? I think Joss Whedon stayed at Jim Henson's house oh. overnight and he found... There is a copy of Labyrinth that's like the uncut version with a bunch of extra oh, stuff. Wow. And it's like three hours long. Oh, my God. And the pre-edit. Yeah. And but because of the way that Henson's estate works, nothing is leaving his house and his studio. So okay. it, it, it basically no one will ever see it, which is such a cruel thing to know as a Labyrinth fan and yeah. knowing all the different content and the vision and the ideas and like reading through Henson's notebooks, you're like, oh, it must be so good. <laughs> and knowing that it's probably a bunch of like David Bowie footage. That's true. You just you, you want, want it even it. more now. Right? Yeah. As they enter the Goblin City, they're attacked by the resident goblins, which they defeat when Ludo calls for the army of boulders to assist them. They enter the castle and Sarah insists she must face the Goblin King alone. She proceeds up the stairs into an M.C. Escher-inspired chamber and encounters Jareth briefly before seeing Toby. We get another song here. We do. I like this song. Mm-hmm. Not quite a bop, but I do like it. And also kind of weird that he's like singing to her during this, I guess. He doesn't like do anything. He just like sings at her, tells her yeah. where Toby is, and lets her run around. Yeah, well, I think it's... He's almost sort of given up. I think he's very think close so? to giving up at this point. Because he, he has his final plea and everything still coming He does up. have his final plea, okay. but it's not... His final plea seems very leveled. Yeah? Very just like, look, cards on the table. <laughs> do you, do you want to live in this fantasy world or not? Yeah. Which, I mean, after running through 13 hours of that, I think I would also be like, I'm, I'm hard good. pass. Thanks. I'm good. Thank you. Give <laughs> me my baby back. I'm or 10 leave. after he cut it down. That's true. He did. Yeah, it wasn't even. Yeah. So apparently he can just cheat, too. That's fine. Yeah. But he's, he comes off as very sad during this whole sequence. Yeah. I think he's just like, ah, nothing I've done has worked. It's miserable. Yeah. He's defeated. Yeah. Which is its whole, the whole Jareth sarah relationship thing is a whole thing. It's, it's a, a whole thing. whole thing. That means different things to different people. Right. Which, before I read the book, I had theories on it where I was like, maybe we've misinterpreted this whole time and mm. it actually means this. And then I read the book and I was like, never mind. Oh, interesting. <laughs> it was like, they made it very clear in the novel oh. <laughs> that it was what everyone said it was. Okay. So, I tried to justify something that is not there. <laughs> <laughs> After navigating the confusing chambers, she leaves towards Toby and the chambers come apart, leaving her alone with Jareth. Jareth continues to offer her things she doesn't want, and Sarah repeats the same passage from the book that she began the film with, ending with the line, You have no power over me. She appears back in her home with Toby fast asleep in his crib. Sitting in front of her mirror, her friends from the labyrinth each appear before her to say goodbye. She tells them that she needs them, and as she turns around, the three of them, along with other inhabitants of the labyrinth, all celebrate together. Happy, happy, joy, joy. I both love and hate this ending. Why is that? I I love it because it's like, you know, your experiences and your friends and mm-hmm. your life come along with you and that forms you as a person. But also, I hate that they throw a party in her bedroom with like party hats and streamers and they dance around like they're actually there. I get it. It's a kid's movie, but it's a little... I also kind of hate that it's more than just her three friends. Yeah, I don't really like that it's some people who are like, like straight up mean. There's a fiery in there. Yeah, that I'd be like, get out of my house yeah. right now. Like, like these people are not all your friends. Yeah. Why are some of them here? Like if you turned around and that fiery wasn't there all of a sudden, you'd mm-hmm. be like, you have to find him. He's going to start ripping people's heads off. <laughs> we can't have him running around. But there's like the different goblins are there too. and It's weird. It's very strange. There's a reason it doesn't fit. It's not the original ending. What was the original ending? So, and this isn't even just from the first script, because a lot of that stuff was scrapped a long time ago. They changed this during production. Uh Oh. The original ending, instead of her sitting in front of her vanity mirror, she was looking out her window, the same one that Jareth came in before, 
And she has the communication with her three friends in that window in very similar fashion that she does in the mirror. But instead of like her turning around them all being there, they just say goodbye and they fade away. Mm. And they were like, well, that's not upbeat enough. So they changed it. It's a better ending, though. It's such a better ending. But maybe, as we said before, it might be a little heavy for... (laughs) Although, I okay, I say this, and then I remember things like the Dark Crystal. Mm -hmm. And that was also like a quote-unquote like family-friendly movie. And so many things die in that movie and fade away, and it's creepy. It's also like it feels like forever when you're watching it. I love it, but it it goes on forever. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's a better ending, but it also changes the idea of the entire movie by changing the ending. So obviously there's a lot of metaphor going on in here without having read the novelization because for me i like looking at a thing as it is yeah i could get more information from other places but i'm like but that's not the movie so what is your kind of interpretation of the movie like what it actually means i mean it's okay so this is where like my notes are going to come in i mean it's to me it's always been a coming of age movie sure like even and i'm crowbar separating the novel because this is i read the novel once and i was like that was Fun. I really got it because it had like Jim Henson sketches of the goblins in the background. And I was like, oh, I want to see those. (laughs) So I dumped money on a book, obviously, like you do. But I mean, it's just such a voyage or in the beginning she starts and she has the script and she's playing make believe. But the words and the actions in the world, they're in the script and they're given to her. But when she gets there, it's by all means, she should know this world. And I think she feels like she should know it. And Mm -hmm. it's a piece of cake. Like, she should know these creatures and the environment and what's supposed to happen. But she's not playing a character in the script anymore. Like she just has to be herself and make her own choices and deal with those consequences. And that's a big part of being 16 mm-hmm. is you're in that age where you're like, oh, I kind of I have to learn things and learn by experience and not yeah. everyone's going to hold my hand all the time. And that classic it's a piece of cake thing even if you make these right choices like the door conundrum it doesn't always work out like you end up falling through the floor and then you still have to make another choice Mm -hmm. which might not be the right choice because you took things for granted because you took things for granted and you chose to go down for no but i mean go for it it's your choice it's (laughs) you know it's your decision to suffer the consequences of and it's the breaking down of that and another the whole jareth sarah relationship Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, especially as a girl growing up and being older now and looking back on, you know, things that I've experienced, it's such an important, if subtle message to tell girls and young people that at that age, your innocence is a commodity both to yourself and to other people. Mm, Interesting. And being aware of why. And it might not always be the best where... For you yourself, holding on to your innocence, holding on to that imagination, it helps you form your personality and form your perception of the world and mm-hmm. make these choices. But other people, it's a commodity because it, they want it for themselves, either possessively or because they're jealous of it, which obviously there's the whole weird, like romantic implications that always come up about Jared People are always like, Sarah. it's pedophilic. And yeah. honestly, I don't buy any of that. I don't necessarily I throw it all out because it's not that's not actually what's happening. Yeah. It's all her crush on this figure that doesn't exist. Right. So there's no pedophilia because she simply has a crush <laughs> on an older guy, which is something that happens to kids. They it get does. crushes on adults all the time. Right. So I mean, it's very it's extremely cautionary. Yeah, it's very, very cautionary <laughs> because I mean, the junk lady situation in this, like I said at the very end, that his last song. As she goes, his attempts to stop her from growing up and maturing mm-hmm. stop being so wrench in the system, wrench in your system. Oh, I screwing up your plan, and more so of like, just stop, just stop. Here, you're going to trap you in a bubble. Uh, no, okay, here, I'm going to trap you under all these like childhood things you mm-hmm. have. So when she continues to still push back, that I think he's just very like, oh man, really none of that worked. <laughs> like you are just determined to like it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Which is why even I don't necessarily buy the, his ending plea 
where he's like, just no. chill out. It seems very where he's like, okay, like now we're doing the thing that we have to do. This was going to happen no matter what. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say the thing and you're going to say the thing and I'll be sad, but I'm not really sad. It does feel like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, like he just kind of throws the bubble in the air and he's like, well, so, but then I always had this theory and this happened within the past couple of years when okay. I was rewatching it because as they, in that opening sequence, when they go through the room. And all that stuff is there. So there's like the Didymus plush on the Mm -hmm. Labyrinth game, which is a very hard game to play if you've ever played it. There are photos of her mom, Mm -hmm. her actual mom, tacked up around the mirrors. Or her mom was an actress. And the whole backstory is that her mom ran off with her co-star and lived this, you know, glamorous life Mm -hmm. on the run with each other. And they like constantly send Sarah these letters and notes and playbills and stuff. Uh, But they used David Bowie is the other guy in the photo. Mm -hmm. And... To me, I was like, oh, what if that means that this Jareth character is her desire, not so much like romantically, I have this crush on this person and more of a father figure or mm. lacking of a father figure because her real, her biological father seems so distant into this new life mm-hmm. with the stepmom and Toby. And some of the songs, when you look at the lyrics or you break it down, it's, it seems less of him being like seductive goblin king Mm -hmm. and a little more of like oh i'm gonna teach you how to be an adult and you know you need me around and i'm gonna teach you why and xyz things and then i read the book and it was shot so far out of the water with straight up him trying to kiss her it's very strange it's very uncomfortable to read and i was like never mind we're gonna backpedal on the whole dad daughter thing (laughs) because now it's a little weird right but yeah to me it felt more comfortable looking at jareth as someone who just is a father figure and steals these babies. Mm. <laughs> it's like steals these girls who feel alone and not to be creepy, but to bother them. So I thought the whole, I mean, the, for me, the whole thing just exists in her brain. Like well, it's, it's, it's all just imagination. It's all just a dream. And clearly you've never been stolen by a goblin King. Rob. Clearly not <laughs> like the, it's way too coincidental. I don't even think it's foreshadowing that like, oh, we're just setting up these things subconsciously in her room that they don't actually have a connection to the real world. It's just stuff she's going to see. Obviously, she created this world based on the book that she liked. Right. Toby never went anywhere. So there's there's that side of it. And there's I say there's no like pedophilia thing because this is not an actual person that is like pursuing or being predatory towards Sarah in any way. Right. It's Sarah just saying, oh, this is this person represents me maturing and growing up and losing my innocence it's he steals a baby away he steals innocence it's <laughs> yeah. so blatant and there's there is a sexual connotation to things because there's a lot of phallic symbols in the movie and stuff like he's constantly playing around with balls or a staff i mean just look at his costume rob there's that just look at his costume there's that there's <laughs> there's in the ballroom all the masks have like long noses and stuff there's yeah. all those kind of things so there's that idea too the thing with her stepmother in the beginning saying you should be dating like throwing all these adult things at her. So she's clinging to her childhood. And this whole movie is just the battle between being a kid and keeping your imagination intact and growing up and being an adult and quote unquote, losing your innocence. But I think the ending shifts the idea of that then, because if she has all those people in her room at the end, She's decided to hold on to her childhood as long as possible and not grow up. Whereas if they had faded away, it's like I've accepted and now I'm taking those steps towards moving into being an adult. I think it completely changes the movie. And I don't know if they considered how important that was. I mean, the dialogue, I think, preserves it and that she's like every once in a while, I need you. True. Which I mean, every once in a while, you're like, oh, remember when I was a kid? You're like, oh, I used to do this when I was a kid. You're like, how do I? Oh, like, what if, like, just the words, what if is very, it relies on your imagination. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess visually to have them still throwing like a surprise party in her little twin bed next to her stuffed animals is a little, I don't know. It's It's more than a Peter Pan. It's more than a one last huzzah with your imaginary friends. Like they're sticking around and Sarah's going to have some issues when she's. If they just didn't cut to the party. Totally fine. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I like. Like I said, I love to hate it. Like, I like that they're all there at the end. It is uplifting and fun. 
But when you do get down to the implication of what that means, that they're it's not nearly as satisfying. Room. Yeah, yeah. It's not even like she like acknowledged that she still has these stuffed animals and stuff either. Like if they had faded away and she had like picked up the fiery doll or something, like even that's like they're gone. But I still have like, a little memory. Yeah, of that. there's a lot of that ways they could have done it. It was a little too much. <laughs> a little, a little <laughs> weird celebration. But anyway, that is labyrinth. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap things up, is there anything we can plug for you? Social medias or anything like that? Oh, yeah. man. Um, I'm definitely active on the Instagram. That's sort of my go-to feed now, I think. So I'm at that girl, Erin. I'm on Twitter, but it's really where I just go to make weird Disney references and retweet sassy things and like be salty at companies in the hopes of getting <laughs> free passes, which I'm also... That girl, Aaron. I think there's an underscore before somewhere Aaron. in there. Yeah, I'll link them. Someone else took the name before I got it. I was, I'm gonna have to fight them to the death. There can only be one. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Rob. Random Movie Club is a production of the Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on the Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. You can support Random Movie Club and get access to exclusive bonus content by visiting our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. Join our community on Discord at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord. Our theme song is provided by Michael McLeod of Wolfstein Music. A link to his site can also be found on our site. Thanks for listening, and make sure you join us next time when we'll discuss Clueless. See you then.